So a little bit of, uh, I won't call this addendum because it's, it's more of a talk. Um, and then we will do another meditation. Not sure if it'll be a full 24 minutes. Um, and then we'll start to address these questions. I'm so happy to see lots of questions. But I think also uh, Alan and I will be able to discuss these before tomorrow and then inter integrate it into tomorrow's um, teachings. I hope most of you will be able to, to return tomorrow. I realize that it was a separate day registration, but of course mm, there will be complete continuity for, for both of us in what we're sharing each day. Am I getting feedback here? Okay. Uh, So just to, to clarify one point that, that we spoke about in the break, um, this Tibetan word, Laksam, Sampa is actually a technical term within different um, <coughs> mental functions, according to Buddhist psychology, which I won't go into now, but uh, Ellen pointed out that the best translation for it, and we, we've spent a lot of time talking about translation over the years, um, is intention. Nature is the term also resolve. Resolve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I actually want to add to that decision. A decision. We can make decisions about all sorts of things in life. And we know that sometimes circumstances intervene so that we can't do those things as and when we planned to. But there is a plan, and we undertake actions based on that intention, based on that resolve, based on that decision. So it's different, it is different simply from an aspiration or motivation. Sometimes we can use that word differently in English, but in terms of the very precise categorizations of mental functions in Buddhist psychology, it's important to make the distinction between the kunlong, which is motivation, which is that which drives our intention, but motivation is is that which is behind, it's the reason, it can be virtuous or non-virtuous behind what we do, as opposed to an intention which is this, mm, a mental force is, is pushing it, but then it turns into, I will. And that is this key to the personal responsibility that decides, there may be other Buddhas, there may be other enlightened beings already existing, but I myself must take the responsibility based on the world of sentient beings that I perceive and can deduce are there, even those I can't perceive directly, and I make this resolve um, to reach a state of enlightenment in order to care for all these beings for all time. And now that, as I said, I was going to give you an overview, big picture, deep dive, I'd like to step back, but I don't actually feel it stepping back. I feel it's going, mm, okay, if we have even a hint of a resolve, where do we start? And so then now I'll segue into loving kindness, which is traditionally presented as the first of the four immeasurables. As I said, there are different reasons to put compassion first or even uh, impartiality, equanimity first. Let's maybe talk about that a little more yet tomorrow. Um, but loving kindness, I will speak about more tomorrow, but for just to begin our meditation very soon, what is it to love? Like we can have these very exalted visions of all sentient beings, infinite time, total transformation of a mind stream. It's inspiring, it's powerful. We need to do that. But when it comes down to our hearts today, tomorrow, the next day, what is love? What is loving kindness? And I'll answer that question in some very beautiful details tomorrow that we have from the Buddhist traditions, on, the Buddhist teachings on this topic. Uh, But for right now, I want to juxtapose 
two different quotations, actually. So the first is from the Buddha's Discourse on Loving-Kindness. And this is on two, page two of the Loving-Kindness notes. So you have two different packets, the one that Alan was following this morning and one that I'm following now. And uh, So I think it's the reverse of the first page, you know, the double-sided. So we'll meditate on this more tomorrow, but just let these words sit, sit in your heart. May all beings be happy and secure. May their minds be contented. Whatever living beings there may be, feeble or strong, tall, stout, or medium, short, small, or large, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born and those who are yet to be born. May all beings, without exception, be well. Let no one deceive another nor despise any person anywhere. And I just want to pause there. What would our lives look like if we never despised another person? And it just takes checking, watching our mind all the time, and becoming, having our, our mental affliction meter be so <laughs> sensitive that the slightest hint of dislike that turns into contempt, disapproval that turns into despising, annoyance that turns into hatred. And that meter is so sensitive inside of us that we can release it. Just on, on the spot, quelled on the spot like the rainstorm. And if it means sitting down right where we are and starting mindfulness breathing, if that's the first step, but to recognize that these kinds of thoughts, deception, despising, in particular, they're singled out here, are such a fundamental obstacle to developing loving kindness. And that loving kindness that is the doorway to our own happiness and the happiness of others. So if we, if we pick one thing to be really, really strict with ourselves about, I'd say this one is doable. It is possible to live without despising anybody. It's very possible for every single one of us. And it just takes vigilance. And really, if we see that feeling coming up, looking at it, why is that coming up? What false view am I holding that's making me think I have to feel this way towards someone? Even, as Alan says so often, if we rightfully disapprove of behavior, we never need to despise a person. And I'll speak more tomorrow about what it is to look into every person's soul, as it were, with love, regardless of what they do. <coughs> so continuing, in anger or ill will, let no one wish any harm to another. So this is the prayer that nobody else despise anybody else. Just as a mother would protect her only child, even at the risk of her own life, even so, let one cultivate a boundless heart toward all beings. Let one's thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above, below, and across, without any obstruction, without any hatred, without <coughs> any enmity. Whether one stands, walks, sits, or lies down, as long as one is awake, one should maintain this mindfulness. This, they say, is the sublime state in this life. So just imagine what our lives could be like if we could just follow the instructions in that paragraph. <laughs> And 
And if that wasn't enough, now I invite you to actually uh, find a meditative posture. Don't, don't worry about reading this. For some of you, it may be so familiar you don't even know where you heard it. Uh, there are lines from this which have gone into our language. They've been used so frequently. But I think we need to hear it fresh. Once again, with few words, I invite you to settle your body in its natural posture. Your speech in its natural outer and inner silence, the natural rhythm of the breath. And, you, and your mind in its natural state of simple awareness. Allowing thoughts to arise and pass without distraction, without grasping. Without being carried away by thoughts. Letting them go like sounds around the room, just resting in the simplicity of awareness. Find again within your own heart, your own highest aspiration, and see whether that has become an intention, a resolve. And if it hasn't, that's fine. Just know the difference between what you aspire to and what you have actually decided you will do. And simply resting in awareness, let these words come and speak to you however they will. <coughs> if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. <coughs> Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know now only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. I think these words can become like a touchstone for us. No matter how much effort we put in our spiritual path, they can always reflect some part of us that's, oh, how can my love be purer? How can my love be more sincere, less sullied by partiality in one or another way? So now I'd love to mm, transition into the questions. And uh, Alan asked me to read because, well, I do need glasses for any mm, major bit of reading, but I can manage, I can pull this off without glasses. Yeah, I can. <laughs> so actually, out of loving kindness to myself, I will get my glasses because I've brought on too many headaches by trying to read without them.
I have a hunch that both of us will have something to say about this one. Um, you describe the practice of settling the mind and cultivating awareness and loving kindness as instruments of healing for our mental afflictions. Yet some experiences are so inert, and I, my sense is the person actually meant innate or uh, deeply ingrained. Yet some experiences are so uh, innate that they will never go away. For example, a childhood trauma. Can you describe more about the ebb and flow of practice that may allow one to navigate through these experiences while practicing awareness and not getting stuck? Okay, I'll start. Yeah. And we'll see how this can go. You may have to turn yours off. Yeah, I did. And turn up. <laughs> so I'll start. Freud said that any type of experience, remember, we have is stored in the subconscious and it doesn't go away. Now, he, I think he presumes that when you die, you're finished. But they don't go away. And something very similar in Buddhism, but with, on a grander scale, because in the Buddhist view, memories are not stored in the brain. It's actually, it's actually a categorical error. It's like saying odors are embedded in the Moonlight Sonata. <laughs> it just doesn't mean anything that a memory, a feeling, a dream, compassion are actually embedded in chemicals is silly. So I hope that becomes quite well known sooner than later. But memories are stored in consciousness. They already, they always are. But in the deeper brain that we'll, I will refer to tomorrow, they are stored and they will not go away. And the way to liberation is not through amnesia. It's not through forgetting. It's through remembering. And so I cannot say that I've ever suffered technically post-traumatic stress disorder. But the, and I have no psychological training at all. As a therapist, nothing of the sort. I come up with grand zero. <coughs> but I would say with great confidence that the way to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder, or I'm moving out of the technical realm since I have no expertise there at all, but memories that causes suffering in the present, in the present moment, is not to forget to forget them, but but to be totally present with them and unperturbed. And so, are the memories innate in the sense that they're not going to go away? They may. We we do forget things. I mean, how many unhappy days were that that I had when I was a kid? You know, getting scolded or things that I didn't like, but I don't remember most of them. So some memories do go away, but in the Buddhist view, they didn't vanish. The imprints, the memories are stored there. It's hard for me to be short. So I'll just go right to this. They are innate in the sense that in the deepest level, they are indelible. They're not going to just disappear. You may lose contact. If you get Alzheimer's, when you get older, you're going to forget a lot. That might come as some relief. <laughs> but the, the resolution and the healing is to be able to be totally present with it. And not in just a simple way of resting in the stillness of awareness and being aware of a memory which is merely like an echo or a reflection in a mirror, having no substance, no power of its own at all. It's just a reflection, a memory, an echo of something that occurred a long time ago. But more than that, I won't give a whole story, but I know of an individual whose father traumatized him out of his, the complexities and the deformities of his own mind, and the son was deeply traumatized by that, and the pain of reliving that experience went on for decades. But more than simply seeing it's an empty echo, it has no power over me now, to recognize what could impel a father to be so savagely dismissive of his own child, that he would crush his child's sense of worth, self-worth, dignity. How troubled must that father be? And how deeply worthy of now that's deep healing. That's deep healing. Where it's no longer about me. That I was just, I could have been, I was to whom it may concern. I could have been anyone, but this, mind's, this man's mind was so troubled, so distraught, that it just came forth in words of harm. So memories don't go away. They shouldn't. But the afflictions around them can. And I'm sure you have something. Just a little How's bit. That 
uh, yeah, just one word that I'll add to that is forgiveness, that, um, which I think is implicit in everything that you just said, that sometimes when we can come to the place of deep forgiveness, which has to do with recognizing the mental afflictions that have caused someone to do something, even that hurt us very badly, um, can be the trigger that truly allows us to let it go as, as in something that won't continue to afflict us. So the memory can still be there. And I can, I can speak of this um, just very recent memory from retreat, because when one's in solitary retreat, especially doing these kinds of practices of mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind in its natural state, you're deliberately opening the Pandora's box of your memory uh, to allow all those experiences, good, bad, and indifferent, to arise. And so yes, what I have found is that there's, sometimes these are things that I know I forgave 10, 15, 13, 20 years ago, but they still come up as memories. And sometimes one realizes degrees of, uh, I'll use the word trauma because it was the word in, in the question, trauma fissures even, like cracks in one's being um, because of the pain one has seen in someone else that somehow was taken out on, on you, but you realize more and more it had nothing to do with you. It is that person's pain. Um, and I think that process of seeing the actual source of harm in mental affliction, it creates a kind of impartiality because we see how everybody's suffering from the same range of mental afflictions to different degrees, but the same um, recipe, shall we say, the same ingredients. And then that, create, that can create a different trigger system so that the memory isn't coming up attached to the pain. The memory is coming up attached to loving kindness and compassion. And so that is a long process. And I feel that the person asking the question is very aware of that. It's going to be a very long-term process. But when the memory only generates loving kindness and compassion, then you know there's nothing to fear. Uh, because it then has, it, in terms of the, the practice of transforming the good and bad things that happen to us and the happiness and suffering that arise in our mind, all of it into the path, this is quintessential lo jong, the, the transformation uh, of something that did happen and was painful and now it's only triggering our practice of loving kindness and compassion. And let's go even one step further. This happens that we've had many conversations. I keep on triggering. May I offer you this one? I think okay. can, it's, sure. it's just working better. I think we can do that. Back to the mother of all lojongs in the inter-Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, and that is the guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. It's the paradigm. Uh, but in this brilliant chapter, on the sixth chapter on patience, forbearance, fortitude, Shantideva goes even a step further than either of us have here. And that is when others have harmed us, like this father who really sabotaged his own son, just pulled the rug right out from under him, demolished him psychologically. If the son can so ripen and so mature, and then even not only no longer be harmed by the memory of that very traumatic experience, but move beyond that, good to not be harmed, and even better, to view the person whose mind was so afflicted, so disturbed, so imbalanced, that a father towards his own son would say something so harmful and may not even be aware that it was harmful, just telling his truth, that the son might then actually feel compassion for his father, remembering vividly. And then the more vivid the memory, the better, the stronger the compassion. But then Shantideva takes a step beyond that, gratitude. <coughs> Because it's so hard to feel compassion for those who harm us. And father, an actual biological father, I thank you. I don't know that I could have ever tapped into this depth of compassion had you not spoken those words and troubled me so deeply. And so now I have only gratitude for you. Because as Shantideva points out, if the, everyone you ever encounter, you have such a life filled of a bowl full of rose petals that everybody around you is just nice. <laughs> They're just nice, you know? Just everybody's nice to you. You'll never develop that inner fortitude. You'll never develop the strength. You'll never perfect patience. You'll never do it. We need 
people. We need people in government, in business. We need neighbors. We need people who disturb us <laughs> and do awful things. We don't need to encourage them in that. They'll do it all by themselves. <laughs> but we need that. Because it's easy to feel compassion for a person who is suffering. And it's not so easy to feel compassion for a person that's inflicting suffering. But if we can't do that, we'll never become awakened. I'll just say that again. If we cannot feel compassion for those out of their own mental afflictions, their delusion, their hatred, greed, are inflicting suffering on the world, if we can't feel compassion for them, we've just slammed the door shut in our own faces. We'll never achieve awakening. It must go that deep. So that's a, he's raised the bar very high for us. <laughs> This one is actually very, the answer would be very similar, so. very pertinent to today's teaching. So, Lama, and I will address it to you. Uh, you mentioned the importance of, uh, in meditation of relaxing. If I find myself in a session and just getting more and more tense without being able to relax, should I stop the session? Probably. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not just give yourself, give yourself a break? <laughs> um, I get emails from students of mine all over the world, two Russian monks in Sri Lanka right now, fighting the good fight, going into solitude and dealing with their demons and the tension that comes up and so forth. And to one of them in particular, I said, I advise you now, meditate less, walk more. <laughs> Sri Lanka is a beautiful country. I spent six, years, six months in a retreat there myself. And just go out now, walk vigorously, and let your awareness come out into space. Attend closely to the world around you. Attend to sense your being, human and non-human. And come out and breathe deeply and walk vigorously and just be present with this world. And often, often that can be much more effective than trying to tough it out on the cushion. So the Buddha spoke of there in that beautiful quote, the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's Discourse on Loving Kindness, whether you're standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, always bear this mindfulness, this bearing in mind, this bearing in mind. And so yeah, the idea is be so gentle, be the horse whisperer to your mind. Sometimes it's better to do nothing. Sometimes better to just give yourself a break and breathe deeply. I want you to know that I'm not exerting partiality here as I'm going through this. I'm trying to figure out how we can answer all of these in the most efficient way, and many of them will come up in tomorrow's teaching. So that's why I'm Thank you. passing through. This is a follow-up on the last one on relaxation. What does clarity feel like? How do you distinguish it from relaxation? Would you like to address it? <laughs> okay. I think you know something about that. Uh, so, so I think you have, I'm not sure if you've used the word pyramid yet today. Have you spoken of the pyramid yet today? I mean, you've no, I implicitly, Maybe it's yes. Maybe it's so, as Alan mentioned this morning, the importance of starting with relaxation. And so the image is of a pyramid where the base is the largest, and then the next layer is a little bit smaller, and then the top is the, is the triangle. And so the, the pyramid for shamatha practice in particular is the broad 
basis of relaxation. And then the stability, which until one's really worked with them, you might even wonder what's the difference between stability and relaxation. Relaxation can actually get sleepy or, or distracted quite easily because the more effort one puts into releasing tension, one's also letting down some of the tensile strength, as it were, of the mind to pull itself back to its object. And so many people who've received teachings on shamatha, um, frankly, in anything but the Dzogchen tradition, uh, the emphasis will be on develop stability and then clarity and put them together and get more and more intense. There's yet another phrase, which is like the, the strength, the, the precise int strength of clarity. Um, so that, as many of us know, can get one tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until you're so wound up that actually the energetic body starts to rebel. So this broad, broad base of relaxation is something that one has to continually come back to. Uh, and so the reason the first balance that Alan described is to balance uh, relaxation without losing the clarity with which you began means the clarity of just being awake and not falling asleep. It's the clarity that we all bring naturally to the practice. And sometimes it can be quite a challenge to relax more deeply without losing that basic clarity. Um, what that would feel like, and probably many of us experienced it this morning, especially if you hadn't had enough sleep or uh, have had a very busy week, and then you're coming in to a retreat day, relax, 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 just distracted by noises for a while, then sitting down. Bodies, and then well, I'm not hearing those noises so much anymore. <laughs> so I can still hear Alan's voice. Yeah, okay, he's still guiding. Yeah, well, relaxed. <laughs> it's a darkening. It's a darkening of the mind, and the Tibetan word is chingwa, which actually means to sink. So you're sinking. Um, and it's the energy of the mind that's going down. So if the bell rings and you feel yourself waking up, that means you've lost clarity. So we've all experienced it. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just practice overcomes. And so the oscillation that Alan taught this morning of gently brightening with the inhalation and releasing with the exhalation is valuable at many, many different levels of practice. Um, but it's a way to keep relaxing at this most basic stage and not fall asleep. Um, there are times, uh, as you have instructed me many times, when one just needs to take a nap, when one just needs to sleep. Um, and so not to beat oneself up because one, just like if, if the previous question, if you, you're getting too tense in a, in a meditation, yes, yeah, stop the session and do something else to release that tension more effectively than the meditation at this point. Likewise, there are more effective ways of restoring one's body-mind equilibrium than meditation if one is sleep-deprived. Uh, so that has to come first. Um, it doesn't mean we'll never try to meditate when we're not in an ideal state, because we, ha we have to meditate when we're not in an ideal state. But there are certain things, and one just learns to gauge, okay, this needs sleep now. This needs a walk now. Um, this needs a good conversation with a spiritual friend now. But then the, the next layer, so that's relaxation. I could talk for hours about it. The next layer of the pyramid is stability, and that means really developing the mindfulness, the recalling one's object of meditation, so that uh, one is not carried away by sounds, by thoughts, by memories, and so on, but knows very clearly what the, the range of the object of meditation is, and doesn't stray from it. But it's possible, for example, in mindfulness of breathing, what we've done so far, especially if using the um, rise and fall of the sensations that the abdomen, which, as Alan says, is so good for developing stability, if one's using that as the object of meditation, some of the sensations there are not so subtle. Uh, or Yes, they're, they're quite coarse. And so it almost, at a certain point, might not give. For some people, it can take you all the way to shamatha. But I think for many people, it's not precise enough. And so one is, 
can be in a nebulous state of mind and say, oh, I'm still feeling my belly go in and out, but the, the energy of the mind is sinking. So this question of, where was it? Um, how do you distinguish it from relaxation? The clarity is that awakeness. And once one has a stability where, for example, you could know that you've not missed the sensation of the rise and fall of the ab abdomen for a whole 10 minutes. Well, let's say one minute first. Um, <laughs> one minute of not losing the continuity of the breath. You're not counting the breaths, but you've not lost the continuity. But you see, the mind is, you're, you're not asleep, but the mind is still not bright. It's not bright enough. And your bell could still ring if you're doing your own timed meditation, and you'd still feel like you're coming, oh, out of something. I wasn't sleeping, but I was somewhere lower, duller. Um, so clarity has to do with then when the stability is reasonably stable. It, they all have to work in tandem. It won't reach its highest level yet, yet, but it's stable enough. Then to just start investigating a little bit, can I detect more subtle sensations? Uh, and that's when, the, especially the full body awareness, the awareness of the breath throughout the whole body gives us so much to watch. On the one hand, it's wonderful for relaxation, but it's also great for clarity because something's always happening. You can't say, I'm breathing, but I don't feel it anywhere. There's always somewhere in the body that will be picking up on the sensations of the breath. And so seeking that will continue to keep the mind awake. And it may not increase the clarity yet, but at least doesn't lose it. And then later on, when the stability is there, you know you're not going to lose the object. You also know you're not going to lose the relaxation. Then one can start to increase clarity by trying to get subtler sensations that you never felt before. And that's what tomorrow's practice of the mind, mindfulness of breathing at the tips of the nostrils is also especially good for. Uh, so I'll s I think that's enough for now on that question. Introspection. It's translated in different ways, <coughs> full awareness, alertness, clear comprehension, but I think introspection is the closest because it is that faculty that we all experience, we know it's there. Our ability to monitor, to be aware of, how is your mind now? Are you bored? Are you interested? Are you tired? Are you clear? Are you dull, agitated, and so forth? It is that metacognitive awareness of the flow of your mindfulness. Well, that faculty that we already have, just like a knife, can be sharpened. And you use a finer and finer grain whetstone to make it like a razor. So mindfulness is doing due diligence. It's attending to the in and outflow of the breath, the sensation, whether the abdomen tomorrow morning and the apertures of the nostrils. But the faculty of introspection can become razor sharp. And how do you know the sharpness, the acuity, the vividness of introspection? It's where, and this is necessary, if you're going to go all the way to achieve shamatha, which is quite a sublime state of samadhi, you need to detect even the subtlest perturbations the little thoughts that could drag you away, the quiet murmuring, something very subtle that normally you would never even notice, or so brief you'd not normally notice. So I often speak of both temporal and qualitative vividness. So what is intensity? What is that clarity? You will notice that when you're detecting events, for example, in the mind, that were so brief you know you would never have noticed before. They're like <coughs> one-tenth of a second. They just come up, but because you're right there, like a very vigilant guard or night watchman, you're so vigilant that you're simply noticing them makes them vanish into the night. And other events taking place in the mind that are so subtle, just a murmuring, or at Tsongkhapa, again, this great 15th century master said, a mental event that's about to arise, a thought that's about to arise and hasn't yet arisen, you're seeing it in an embryonic stage. It hasn't come into full flowery, and you even note that. And then you note it, and then it subsides. So it is a heightening of the sense, and specifically of mental awareness, a heightening of the sense. And Tsongkhapa points out again, I'm citing him a lot here, that when you go very far along this path of shamatha, in between sessions, so try to imagine this. He had to quote Chief Shamada, who knows exactly what he's talking about. But he said the vividness of your attention will be so intense, so intense, so high resolution, 
that you'll, you'll gaze at a pillar or the, or the molecules on a wall and feel you could count the individual molecules. And you know, but you'll feel that intensity, that high res, <coughs> that vividness. Everything is more intense. And I can see with a little bit of experience, not very high, but I'm, you know, I'm the tortoise that keeps on walking for 50 miles and finally gets across the street. Uh, nothing's boring. Nothing's boring. I've met it 12 hours a day. I'm at mindfulness of breathing. At the end of the day, I'm not bored. If you can follow your breath hour and after and never get bored, that's probably a good sign. Because if you can attend to your breath without boredom, then you can attend to any person in the world without boredom, because they're all less interesting, more interesting than your breath. <laughs> Which means you can potentially give them your full attention, because, gosh, compared to my breath, you're just amazingly interesting. <laughs> and this is good. Then you can give your full attention to those around you, your greatest gift. I think this one will follow a little bit on our answer about trauma. Is there a good way to meditate to help with an addiction? That's a whole field of psychology. That's a whole field of psychology in which I've had no training whatsoever. So I think that question should be first addressed to a therapist who's had professional training there and has engaged with and tried to heal dozens or perhaps even hundreds of people with addictions. Holly, would you have anything to comment? Is this close enough to your field? Would you come, please? She's a therapist. She's been practicing for years and years, and she's a practicing Buddhist. But this is a, a question for people who are professionally there, and that's, that's not a training you get in, as a Buddhist meditation teacher. You can just hold it in your hand. Hold in it. Okay. You're on. I'm on. To some degree, we're addicted to everything. We're addicted to life, we're addicted to our thoughts, we're addicted to our afflictions. But there's grosser levels of addiction that, um, you know, they just steal us, they rob us. And we become so attached to them because we think they're going to bring us happiness. And in fact, sometimes they do. Alcohol, drugs, and so forth, oftentimes we do feel relaxed. We want, to, we want to be free, we want to be happy. And so we want more and more and more and more and we cannot stop. And so making the resolution to do something about it and recognizing that you're powerless is the beginning of the path and it's not so far from the path of, of spirituality is recognizing that I am powerless over my life and over this crazy mind. And so getting help, talking to someone, it's motivated by deep pain. And yet underneath, a lot of the young people that work with who really love to take psychedelics and get very addicted to them, I reframe it as if they're seekers. Mm -hmm. You're seeker. You are exploring your mind and the depths of your mind and you're trying to find something. And what is it that you're trying to find? And then, really, we have to get to the point where we stop taking the drug and find a path to happiness that really provides us with the happiness that we're seeking. And a therapist can help. And, and groups of people, 12-step programs or other programs where people who are experiencing the same difficulty can talk about the nuances of this kind of addiction and then once one stopped the substance or stopped now there's all kinds of ways that we get addicted and they rob us of our life but then there are subtler and subtler and subtler levels and then meditation's great <laughs> and so I often teach them meditation once we've gotten to that point where they've cleared the toxic substance or behavior and begun to recognize what it is that they're seeking, heal the trauma underneath. They're trying to get away from sometimes this deep sense of trauma, pain that have happened to them, 
either during childhood, sometimes pain during adulthood, having a severe accident that's lodged into your body of energy and you cannot stop it from coming back over and over again. Sometimes people just want relief. And so it's a continuum, really. Yeah, completely. Nothing adds in substance, but I heard something very interesting um, on a documentary, quite brilliant documentary. I mentioned it last night, was it? David Crosby. Right. David Crosby. And one of the many fascinating things he said in his searing honesty, it was astonishing that a man could be that public about his own failings and his own struggles, including becoming a heroin addict and going to jail, triggered by that. But what I found so fascinating is I, for, for 50 years, I just have no interest at all in psychedelics. I just have something else, and it has no interest to in me. But I've heard that when you take heroin, it's like a nirvanic experience. It didn't make me curious. He says, oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> but what he said, and I found so interesting, came as a total surprise. He said when he first shot up heroin, it was that. It was blissful. It was satisfying. It was brilliant. It was fantastic. And of course, he didn't want to take it again. And he said that never happened again. And from that point on, it, you don't get that one kick. It just deadens the pain of being who you are. I think I paraphrase it pretty closely. It deadens the pain of being who you are. And you can become addicted to that. So let alone getting, wanting happiness and taking a psychedelic is going to give me happiness, thrills, something joyful. It will just plot out the pain of being who I am. That really made an impression on me. And what can that arouse but compassion? So, I just listen. <laughs> then this, this question is, again, related theme. Um, and I'll jump in first, just because I, I relate to it a lot from retreat. Uh, is it normal to become more sensitive as one continues a meditation practice? This is happening for me. Uh, so I would say yes, uh, because it has to do with the clarity. As one's gaining clarity toward one's object of meditation, even if it's the sensations of breath, one's also implicitly gaining clarity toward every single thing that comes up in one's mind and in one's environment. Uh, so it's a good thing to have this temporal acuity, qualitative acuity, that one is seeing more detail moment to moment and more detail that one hadn't noticed before. And that's not just with respect to the content of one's mind. It's also with day-to-day uh, -day life. Cooking a meal can become an intense experience that you'd never realized how many details were there. Um, because now you're not being distracted to 10 other things while you're cooking the meal. Suddenly, all the details of the smells, the textures, the, the temperature, and so on of the process of cooking the meal are arising full-blown. And you're, at the same time, aware of every single thought you're having while you're doing it. So um, that's not always so easy to handle. Uh, and this, I then would relate to our, the, the questions about trauma, addiction, and so on. And I think many of you may know this already, but it's important to put the warning label. Um, meditation will not always be a pleasant experience. <laughs> the path of meditation will not always lead you to more happiness on an hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis. This is a long-term picture. Spoiler alert. It's important to have read the ingredients before we start taking something. <laughs> Uh, but I say this with hope, with fortitude. I used that word before. Um, but it leads to something else that won't be the direct topic of, of this weekend's workshop, but it is important, um, which is refuge. Because whether we're approaching meditation from a strictly Buddhist or purely Buddhist point of view, from another religious tradition, or from a, I'm not sure about the religious part yet, but I want to meditate. Our refuges will be different. 
And I think it's important to say that the very experiences of meditation, especially as one goes deeper and deeper into the simple qualities of shamatha, relaxation, stability, and vividness or clarity, uh, we do need some kind of armor, protection, to carry us through the very process of meditation, much less what we're processing from other experiences in our lives or what's happening even while we're in the path of meditation. Uh, and so I'll leave this just as a question for now. Maybe we'll address it more concretely tomorrow. But for each one of us to ask, what is my refuge? When terrifying thoughts come up, and this I'll indirectly address another question, when really violent thoughts come up, um, what do I fall back on? Because at a certain stage, our resting in awareness isn't stable enough to be our only refuge. Because we're being drawn out of that, so it's not... Our shamatha, it hasn't progressed enough to be fully the refuge for the very problems that will come up in the course of our meditation practice. And so this is one of well, countless reasons, but it's one very pertinent reason for the Buddhist practices of devotion. Uh, and so for those of you who are not familiar with the, the images that are here, these are all representing sublimely advanced beings who have plumbed the depths of consciousness and reached the heights of loving kindness and compassion. And so even as I tried to express very, in very broad terms in, in our last meditation, everyone on a path needs a role model. And so whether that role model is somebody you know directly or not, whether it's somebody you can call on the phone or write an email to or not, the very thought of that person, if it gives you the inspiration to get through something that very difficult that's coming up, that is a refuge for you. Uh, and so when we're dealing with the addictions that may not be, of course, substance addiction or activity addiction, but the simple addiction of being a human being with mental afflictions, um, we need very, very powerful refuges, and it may be more than one, of what we turn to, sometimes without even breaking the flow of our mindfulness and introspection and meditation. You don't have to lose the object, but something so powerful is coming in, part of the mind can drop to that ground that will not move. And that's where faith comes in, that's where devotion comes in, that's where faith that others have trod this path and been successful. Uh, and sometimes just knowing that those beings exist is enough to banish the demon, the Mara, of our fear or of our recurrent trauma or of our impulse to re-engage with a mental affliction or a negative thought that has plagued us for a long time. Please. Something very deeply complementary to what Eva just shared with us. In Pith instructions, one after another after another, and the first I ever received was teachings on Lamrim in the Galupa tradition. Well, Shamatha is the Lamrim stages of the path to enlightenment, and Shamatha figures very prominently there. I translated the whole presentation by Tonkava in his medium Lamrim. But Lamrim is way down the way down the street, and before you get there, you have refuge, and before you get here, you have this radical reorientation of your priorities, developing a spirit of emergence emergence from the clinging and the grasping to hedonia to an absolute prioritization of the cultivation of hedonia through ethics, through cultivation of mind, through cultivation of wisdom. Cultivation of bodhicitta, this radical reversal of instead of prioritizing one's own well-being over everybody else, prioritizing everybody else over oneself, integral and foundational to cultivation of bodhicitta. All of this precedes shamatha. So imagine you've done that. Then I found this reflected in the teachings in the Sakya tradition. If you cling to this life, you are not a Dharma practitioner. And Lerap Lingba, and Padmasambhava, and Dujum Lingba, they all get around to Shamatha. Before they get there, though, they say, if you want to actually flourish, develop, and cultivate Shamatha, you really reap the harvest of this practice. It's not enough just to tell yourself to relax, to relax, to relax, and then say it louder. <laughs> it's like saying, fall, you know, you have insomnia? Fall asleep, stupid. I mean, now, fall asleep. Come on. What are you waiting for? Fall asleep. What? You know, there's a point at which you just, it doesn't work anymore. 
And so it's not just a little getting a massage or taking some Valium or a shot of whiskey. It's existential sense of ease. And one can practice. Chukum Tumba, what, 50, 60 years ago, coined the term spiritual materialism. You're practicing Dharma in order to make samsara work better. <laughs> to have a better sex life, better job, more money, more better vacations, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy life to the fullest. <coughs> Live a rich life, and Dharma can help you. And then when you get old, well, just take more drugs. Because <laughs> as my dad said, about five, five, he's 95, from now on it just gets worse. <laughs> and there's no drug to turn that around, baby. You know? And so existential sense of ease. I'll just end on this note, we have about one more minute. I think it's probably enough for today. But if, even in one's spiritual practice, one is doing this simply in order to find life more satisfying, the same life, but better. Same priorities, same way of behavior, and don't mess with my worldview, I'm pretty happy where I live. Just give me a technique. I tried drugs, they didn't work too, too well. I tried medication, I'm gonna take out one consonant and let's try meditation and see whether that works better. <laughs> but don't mess with my worldview, don't make me challenge my beliefs or my priorities, and I like my way of life just as it is. Let's fix it with some meditation, please. And it's all for the sake of letting your hedonia pursuit be more effective. You know, if that's why one is practicing or doing anything else at all, becoming married, having kids, getting this job, that job, and so forth, in order to perfect samsara, then the only way to, to be really at ease, if fundamentally you're investing your heart, your soul, your mind, into the pursuit of hedonia, if that's really what your life is all about, which is called clinging to this life, if that's what it's all about, then if you're not anxious and depressed, you're not paying attention. <laughs> because you're investing all your effort, your, your striving and so forth, that reality will help you in your pursuit of hedonia. But even if it does on occasion, it won't last. And often it doesn't. And so you may as well start being depressed now. And if you're not anxious, pay closer attention. You'll get there. Because <laughs> that's the realistic response to living in a world in which everything is in flux, even your own body and your mind and your relationships. You may be deeply in love with your spouse, and after some time, your spouse says, not for me, though. Bye-bye. I found somebody better. You can't control that. You might have kids thinking they'll love you, and then after a while, not so much. <laughs> and you can't control that. And so, when you're living in a world that's in a constant state of flux from the inside out, your mind and your body and everything, everything in a state of flux. This is not a user-friendly universe. It's pretty brutal out there. That's why it's called samsara. But you're betting that it's going to turn out well. If you're not anxious, you're not paying attention. And if you're not depressed, you're just burying your head in the sand. But try practicing samadhi with that. So the hope and fear, the craving and hostility, the desire and aversion, if that's underlying your shamatha practice, you can tell yourself like a hundred thousand mantras, be relaxed, relax, chill, dude. It's never gonna happen. Because you don't have that existential relaxation of a fundamental shift in your whole way of viewing reality, such that you can get sick and you still practice. And you can die and you can still practice. And relationships around you may fall apart and the economy may go south. And we continue to, to destroy the environment. And yet you don't need to fall into despair you may actually be a pillar of light that gives other hope. So this is completely, this is completely complementary to what Eve just said. The sense of refuge, that we can go for refuge, it can provide refuge. But the refuge will work if and only if we're releasing attachment to hedonia. Because God isn't there to make hedonia pleasant for us. Or the Buddha or the blessings of the Lama is not there to make samsara comfortable. Relax. Rooted in reality. And then you can really relax. Become what may. You cannot be harmed. Would you like to dedicate merit for it? I assume that you do have these, these prayers, so we'll, we'll start at the end. Um, 
is on the, the back of the prayers chant in Tibetan only sheet. Um, but we'll start with a little mm, nonverbal experiential de dedication. And then for those of you, you who don't know the Tibetan, it doesn't matter because you're, you're sending your prayer with that energy. So in three seconds, settling your body, your speech, and your mind back to the still center. So there's this continuity between all the meditations we've done today, all the listening, all the inner speaking, questioning, grappling with what you hear. It's gone on. Notice how much of it is virtue. It doesn't mean every thought's been a virtual thought, virtuous thought. But there is a collective virtue here, our intent to dwell in loving kindness and compassion, to aspire towards a resolve, maybe make a resolve to follow a path to awakening. And collect whatever has arisen in your own heart today and dedicate it toward your own vision, as we did in the meditation, whatever came up for you as your vision, for your own benefit and that of others. See how far you can spread that light. Just today, just what you've done today, what you've thought today, what you've been today, whatever is good, you can see that flowing on rays of light toward your vision of your future, and toward the benefit, the benefit here and now and in the future of every living being. objects between me and standing. <laughs> Good night, all. Good night. I literally take my cushion everywhere. everyone for coming. If you would like to come tomorrow and you aren't registered, remember to check in with Ryan over there by the door. We also have some Donna boxes on your way